We'll take our text this morning from Hebrews chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there and read along with us, verses 30 and 31. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 and 31. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the heart at Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Our subject is Rahab's faith. The children of Israel, by the time they encountered Rahab in Jericho, had seen a lot of miracles at the hand of God. In the land of Egypt, they had seen all ten plagues played out upon the Egyptians, which were truly miraculous. As they left Egypt, the miracles continued, first one and then another. The Red Sea, who can imagine what that looked like as they crossed on dry ground with a wall of water on either side? It was just one miracle after another. Water out of a rock, bitter water made sweet, manna from heaven, quails, and then the miracle of health, clothing, and everything else, even despite being chastened for 38 years, 40 years in the wilderness. So they had seen plenty of miracles. And the fall of Jericho, as verse 30 speaks of, without any artillery or any military force, these walls collapsing must have truly been, again, quite an event to see. And all of these miracles in God's working should have increased the faith of the Israelites. But again, just visualize the scene as we look at Rahab's faith. That nobody threw a stone, nobody placed any force upon that wall of Jericho, but God took it down. Now, speculation is only speculation as to how big the city of Jericho was, how big the walls were, and et cetera, et cetera, but it had to be quite the city. We know for one reason, because Rahab's house was on the wall of the city. So the wall was big enough to hold a house. We don't know how big the city in itself was. But just imagine seeing that collapse. And the Bible says the walls just fell down flat. The Israelites were surrounding. The enemy was in front of them. The wall, their refuge, their defense was gone. And they just marched straight in and literally slaughtered all of the inhabitants of that great city with one exception. And both those within and those without, they were Amorites, by the way, the inhabitants of Jericho. So the Amorites within and the Israelites without saw all this happen, and there was one exception. There was one thing left standing. There was a part of that wall that remained standing because it had to hold up Rahab's house that was on the wall and in the window of that house was a scarlet garment thread cord of some kind 
I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but that would stand out, <laughs> I mean, to everybody from within and without. To those who are engaging in the slaughter and to those who are being slaughtered, the one thing left standing was Rahab's house. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Why? By faith, Rahab perished not with them that believe not, but she received the spies with peace. I think that's worthy of our thought, meditation, and investigation, don't you? Now, somebody that didn't know might automatically think, well, you know, if that woman was spared and her house and her family that were within were spared, she must have been something special and that must have been a very special house. Some might even think something sacred that God wouldn't destroy it. But no, it was just the opposite. It was a house of prostitution. Rahab, of course, is known to the world by her harlotry. But to Christians, we know her by her faith. And it's easy for the flesh to dwell on the harlotry, but as Christians, and the Bible presents her here in this list of heroes of faith, Reminding us none of us are above anybody else when it comes to the grace of God. In fact, it reminds us that God sent His Son for the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lowest, and the most immoral of the immoral. Sinners in need of salvation. So Rahab's faith not only delivered her personally and physically from the slaughter of Jericho, but also those who were brought into her house. It's also ironic when you consider that this is the initial event, altercation, or introduction to anybody in the promised land. The city of Jericho, and the first person we're introduced to is Rahab the harlot. But she has went down in history because of her faith and what she did and how it benefited and affected many other people. Now you think of her and you persons again automatically might think, well, why her? Why somebody like her? Well, she was not an exception. She was the norm. You say, what do you mean by that? Not everybody's a harlot, No. But let's go back to Abram, a man called Abram. What was he when God chose him? He is very much like Rahab. He was first and foremost, as she was, an idolater, regardless of whatever else they were. <coughs> Excuse me. Both of them came and dwelt in, in the midst of pagan corruption, debauchery, immorality, of the worst kind. And she was a vital participant in it. Rahab was. So again, you can't just point a finger at her and say, why her when, again, throughout the Bible, God has chosen the base, some of the worst of the worst, people that you and I would have never chose, and they are the jewels of his salvation. And Rahab is no exception. It reminds us, course of God's sovereignty that God can and does 
save by His grace whom He will and has mercy upon whom He will regardless of who they are, where they are, what they're involved in, what they've done, etc. So and when you get to thinking along those lines, everybody that God saves stands out almost as an individual miracle, Abraham or Rahab. Well, the text says Rahab perished not with unbelief because she had received this when she had received the spies with peace. Let's look at that manifestation and think about the manifestation of her faith. The text says she received the spies with peace. Let's contemplate that for just a moment. The events of this, of course, took place in Joshua chapter 2, and we'll reference that in a moment. If you want to stick a finger there at any time, we'll be going there. But as you know, that chapter Quickly, I'll rehearse the events that lead up to this. Joshua sent two spies to check out Jericho. They entered into the city. Somehow, someway, somebody knew that uh, they were spies and had come in. It was told to the authorities, to the king. He sent out individuals to apprehend them. Somebody had seen them go to Rahab's house. Uh, you might wonder, well, why would the spies go to a harlot's house? Well, it might be one of the best places to go. Uh, if you wanted to be discreet and inconspicuous and not noticed because that's a place where all kinds and all types of people are frequently coming and going. So again, you wouldn't go to a prominent place in the city if you didn't want to be discovered. You would go to a mean, low place of the city, some place where you would fit in with the lowest that dwelt there and perhaps would not be discovered. Well, somehow in some way, as you know, they were discovered. An entourage of authorities came to Rahab's house and asked her to about these men and so forth. She hid them, you might remember, in the, on the roof and so forth. And, uh, you know, let's just pause there and think about it. Everything she did was absolutely abnormal to what somebody in her position, in her place, in that city at that time should and would have done. I mean, these spies were being sought after by the authorities. And I have no doubt that there may have been a handsome reward or blessing or benefit or privilege if she had turned them over, blown the whistle, or handed them over. There was everything to be gained by turning them over. And everything to be lost by protecting total strangers. And she did the abnormal thing. Receive them with peace. Meaning she was hospitable to them and to who they were and even to their cause of spying out the city. Now think again. It, it's kind of hard for us to grasp unless you really think and put yourself in that position. She was an Amorite. These were strangers. She had heard of these people from which these two spies come, and they've been wiping other people out. Why would you not turn them over for fear of you getting wiped out? They're the enemy. 
of sorts. And yet she receives them with peace, is hospitable to them, hides them up on the roof, on the in the what is it? I forget what it calls that, the flax or things that I'll call it for not turning to Joshua 2 right now, the straw stuff that was on the roof, okay? I don't know the proper word till we can turn over there. But anyway, she hit them. Then she done something she shouldn't have done, and it's not justified, but she lied about them. And I certainly do not believe the end justifies the means in lying, like when Abraham did it, when Isaac did it, when she's done it, and then others have done it. It's not justified. But obviously she did it to protect them. She sent the uh, what we'll call for understanding the posse that was after them, told them that they escaped through the gate right before dark and were headed back to the Jordan River about seven miles away, probably to the forge where they crossed. And so that's where they all, the posse went. And after they left and the gates were closed, she pulled out a cord and let them down the wall because her house was on the wall. Every, and then, even then, gave them advice on where to go and where to stay for a couple of days before you left so you could get out safe. I want you to think about just for a moment, how abnormal every bit of that was. And why? By faith. You know what? Faith causes you to act in an abnormal way, does it not? The normal thing for sinners to do is reject and disbelieve. But faith, believe it or not, causes us to believe that which is unbelievable, to hope into that which has never been seen, and to do abnormal things. I'm just saying to you, it's not normal to believe in God, to serve God, to obey God, to have faith in God. From the human perspective, it's absolutely abnormal. But it's that abnormal belief that's going to put people in heaven while others perish. And it did so with Rahab here. Now, her faith is our subject. And we say to you again, there is no other reason for her to do what she did other than having faith that others did not. All of Jericho perished. The only ones that were preserved were preserved because of Rahab's faith. I don't know if the others in her house, her family, were saved <coughs> spiritually or if they were only saved physically from the destruction. But they benefited from Ahab's faith. More about that later. <coughs> Let's go to Joshua 2 now. And look at that manifestation of her faith by her own words. And see what the really the difference was between her and the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho were. I think it's important that we draw this distinction. And let's read in chapter 2 at verse 9. Now, remember and notice the chronology if you read this and do this later, that when they came, she received them with peace and hid them first of all 
and then lied to the authorities and sent the authorities away. And then in verse 8, before they were laid down, she came up to them on the roof, meaning there for the night or the duration or whatever time they were going to be. The posse's already been sent away. So she's already acted and protected them and received them with peace. Now she goes to him in verse 9 and says, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. And I know that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard, okay, think about it, we. This is general news, general knowledge to everybody at Jericho. Everybody knows what she knows. Okay, that's important. How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And we know what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon, and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. That's their own nationality, Amorites. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Something very familiar here, even though it's in the Old Testament. It's like reading out the book of Acts when Paul or Barnabas went to a city. A multitude heard the news, heard the same news. Heard it from the same source, yet it affected only a minimal amount of people. In fact, the thought that comes to my mind, since Rahab was a woman and the only woman here described who had faith in this, is when Paul went out to the riverbank at Philippi to preach to some woman, women who were having a little prayer meeting out there on the riverbank. We don't know who or how many of them there was or what there were or anything out there. It could have been two. There could have been 200. But the Bible says one thing about one woman. And there was a woman named Lydia whose heart the Lord opened that she attended under the things spoken by Paul. All of Jericho heard this news. Yet the effect seems to have been only to one person. The effect of that is distinguished in that they all heard about the Israelites and they all heard about what the Israelites had been doing and their God. And they were all terrorized and afraid. And that's a good thing. Fear in that respect is a good thing. Sinners ought to fear. Healthy fear will bring you to God. I doubt any of us here would say, well, God save me without any fear. No, I think we probably would all say, when God saved me, I came to him with fear and trembling. Whether we were doing it externally or not, we were doing it within probably. If you weren't fearful for your soul and fearful for eternity, then you probably hadn't been saved. That's a conviction that comes to sinners. That's a conviction of sin, that it has a consequence and a penalty to be had. So they all fainted. They all were terrified. 
And the only thing these Amorites could do would be hide behind the walls of their great city, Jericho. But the distinguishing thing about Rahab was she wasn't just afraid of the Israelites. She was afraid of their God. And she makes that clear right there in that last statement in verse 11, which to me just stands out like Mount Everest in those verses. For the Lord, your God. Now what's she? An idolater of the worst degree and a prostitute within that idolatry. Your God. He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. That is so familiar. Everybody who has been saved out of a pagan, idolatrous religion, some way, somehow, has made that same confession. If you've been saved by placing your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were saved from some form of idolatry. It may have been your own created idolatry. It may not have been a denominational idolatry, but it was some kind of idolatry. And in order to be saved, and when a person is converted, you come out from that idolatry, you turn your back on that, and you turn unto God. I could give you example after example. I'll only mention a couple. Nebuchadnezzar. Flagrant idolatry in Babylon. That confession in Daniel 4, Now I extol the God of heaven. Who's God? Daniel's God. He's the God over heaven and earth. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And He does what He will up there and down here. What Nebuchadnezzar did, and again you think of the contrast, look who he was, look who she is. They both came to the same thing by the same faith. So while everybody else was afraid of the Israelites and the physical consequences of getting destroyed like Sihon and Og, their neighbors over across the Jordan River, her concern is the God that's doing this. It's not the army she's afraid of. It's their God. That's the difference. I'll give you one more example. The thief on the cross them together both in the same boat both of them chiding and mocking the Lord Jesus Christ and at some point that man was regenerated Lord remember me when thou comest remember that what, what you know what did what happened <laughs> a marvelous miracle took place that man was given faith to believe that that man hanging next to him was indeed the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. And did he change his tune? He changed his tune. The Lord, your God. When the Thessalonians, I preached on this not too long ago, heard the message by the Apostle Paul of Paul's God, they turned from idols to serve the living God. They, in essence, 
when you read that first chapter in Thessalonians, and you read verse 10, them turn your Bible, they in essence by that action are doing what she's doing here and confessing the same thing. Paul, the Lord, your God. Not our gods we've been serving. Your God. He's the God of heaven above and earth earth beneath, and I'm putting my faith in Him, and I'm turning against all these back here that I've been holding on to. That's what faith does. That's the manifestation of her, of her faith. They all heard, but she acted differently. What does Romans 10 say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they going to call? In whom they haven't heard, and how are they going to hear without a preacher? Hearing, a work of grace, faith, believing, and then acting. And let me just say, as we've already discussed what she did, her faith caused her to risk everything she had and everything she was, her future, her family, everything. Again, I say to you, that's what saving faith that the Scriptures talks about says. Jesus said, if you're not willing to turn away from anybody and everything, you're not fit to be my disciple. If you don't love me more than father and mother, lands, houses, wives, oxen, whatever, you're not worthy of me. She risked it all. Faith, saving faith, does that. Some would look at it and say, well, it's blind faith. No, it's not. It's not totally blind. She did this on a covenant agreement with these spies. And yet she did not know them. They were still strangers to her. But they were representatives of a God that she now believed in. Now, I'm saying this, and I'm going slow, because I want you to think of the difficulty, not the difficulty, the impossibility of doing this humanly without faith. These spies are in a tough situation. People will do anything in duress or to save their own skin. We know that. They promise to preserve her when they take the city for helping her, for her helping them. A few hours ago, she didn't even know these people. And yet, now she's going to place her whole future? Again, you say, that's just unbelievable. Yes, in a sense it is, but yet that is normal when it is God's faith. Again, I go back to the Thessalonians, and we could give you other examples. When Paul went into a city and preached to people the Lord Jesus Christ who had never heard it, and they turned unto him, they were risking it all just like she was risking it all. And they were believing in someone that a few hours before they'd never met, never heard of. And yet they left it all. That's, a, that's what faith does. Do you see the transforming power of saving faith? Well, the bottom line is there is no such thing as passive faith, not if it's real faith. This deal of uh, just believing, but you can't tell any difference in a person when they didn't believe than when they did believe, 
The Bible knows nothing of that. Rahab's faith is the same faith you have if you've been saved by the grace of God, and it transformed her just like it transforms you, and like it transformed every believer. It does the same thing. It's active. It works. We just discussed it. Everything she did proved the supernatural impartation of grace and faith into this harlot's heart. James brings it up. She's only mentioned two times in the New Testament. Well, three times in the New Testament. Nothing else is said of her here after Joshua. She's mentioned, and we'll get to one of them in Matthew in a minute, but, but Hebrews and James are the only two places she is mentioned. And James uses her as an example in chapter 2 of verse 25 of how we are justified in our faith by our works. <clears throat> verse 24 of James 2, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And look, look of all the people James could have brought up, look who he brings up as an example. He's not bringing her up because she's a harlot. He's bringing her up because her faith was exceptionable, exceptional among the people and time where she was. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? How do we know she had faith? Everything she did proved her faith. Receiving them, hiding them, even the lie was motivated to protect them, even though the lie is unjustified. She confessed with her mouth to those men that she believed in their God as the God of heaven and earth. And she proved that by then, after confessing that, letting them down the wall with that cord and telling them where to go and hide. Everything here she risked. There was a greater human consequence of loss here than there was of her being delivered by the promise of these people she'd never met. And yet she did it anyway. And the Bible says, and you know the covenant, they said this, this cord that you've lent us down by, put it in your window. And when we take this city, anybody that's in this house will be spared, but anybody that's not, they're on, it's on your own head. If they're in this and they get harmed, it's on our head. And I'm paraphrasing, summarizing there. Now think about this. After they got away, the Bible says, and I like this, I'm, I'm going to read that. Uh, verse 15 of Joshua 2, Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. She told them where to go. Uh, let me get down here. Verse 21, And she said, According unto your words, so be it, and she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. <laughs> right then. She let them down with it, and then she put the scarlet thread in the window. And then she waited. 
She waited with hope, right? And again, this reminds us that faith always has the product of hope. Faith is the evidence of things, what? Unseen, you know? She's risking everything for something that she does not humanly know will happen. But she has hope that it will. I got to make one comment here just about the scarlet cord or the thread and whatever this was. It's two different words if you actually look at it. One's a cord and the other's a thread. I don't, I don't know it. I don't know whether it was curtains tied together or whatever it was. I, I don't even going to get into that. But it was sufficient to let them down and it was scarlet and it went in the window. And that's what's important. And the fact that it was scarlet kind of carries a, a little bit of designation, but uh, I think we can make a reference here because a lot of people think about, well, this is very similar to the Passover in Egypt. And in a sense, it was because in the Passover, what was to be done? Everybody was to be in the house. The lamb was to be killed and all that. And the blood, the red blood was to be put around the door, wasn't it? When I see the blood, what? I'll pass over you and spare you. Anybody out of the house? Perish. You're in the house under the blood, you know. Here's the scarlet, one house, one scarlet, window. Everybody in that house survived. Everybody outside of that house perished. It's just, you can't hardly not think of it, okay. Whether it is representative or not or not, you can't hardly keep, I can't keep from connecting those two dots a little bit. Scarlet. The color is important. We know that. The Bible makes reference, though your sins be as scarlet, you know, they'll be white as snow, referring to the cleansing. Scarlet, the color of blood, and so forth. But anyway, we just had to mention that. But uh, it's ironic also that that scenario also kind of depicts the scene we see with the ark. Think about the ark. Those who were within were saved. Those without perished. Same with the Passover. The within under the blood were saved. The ones without perished. And here again, her and those she brought into her house and were under the scarlet thread in the window, you know, the designation there, saved and the rest perished. Well, her faith was certainly justified by her works, as James said. That's unmistakable. We close with this thought of the testimony of her faith. You know, faith always has works, and faith always leaves a testimony. Now, there was an immediate testimony. Her work showed that, right? I mean, the testimony was right there in the window. Every day the children of Israel marched around that city. There was one house with a red cord in it. Everybody knew what that, what that was there for. You know that beyond any shadow of a doubt. Joshua, you know, I mean, this, this went out, you know, she was to be spared. So that testimony was there for seven days. I don't think anybody the Amorites would have had a clue about what it was there for or why it was there. I mean, this was a house of prostitution. I mean, don't tell them what kind of curtains and windows and things like that went on. But nevertheless, when the slaughter started and the walls went down and there it stood... Can you imagine being an Amorite on the inside and here comes the Israeli army, the Israelite army 
with swords and they're fixing to kill you and all you can see is the whole town laid flat except for one house and one window scarlet thread. Can you imagine that being the last scene you saw when you went out of this life? It was a testimony to her own people. It was a testimony to her family who she brought in, whoever and how many they were. And it was a certain testimony to the Israelites who'd done seen it for seven days marching around the city. And then when the walls fell down, guess what? There it stands. Now, you know, we hear a lot about today and we've seen the pinpoint accuracy of bombing by the United States military. Even the military ain't that good. But God is. I mean, what else can I say to emphasize you the miracle of that? The miracle of dropping the wall flats, unbelievable, but the miracle of leaving one little part and one little house and one person with all her family in there is even more miraculous. And yet we know why. By faith, Rahab. He did believe that Yahweh or Jehovah was indeed the God of heaven and earth. She was an Amorite, but she married a Jewish man. Son, whose name was Boaz. And Boaz married a Moabite woman named Ruth. And Ruth had a son, I believe whose name was Obed, and Obed's son was Jesse, and Jesse's son was David. That makes Rahab the great-great-grandmother of King David. In that messianic line, it brings two women who were not Jewish women into the messianic line, one after the other, Rahab and Ruth. And let me just tell you, it's not proper to put women's name in genealogies. And yet there they are. So she had a testimony then. She had a testimony thereafter. That not only God would save this woman, who was not a part of the elect nation, but God's ways are not our ways, are they? So there her testimony is in Matthew chapter 1 in the 5th verse of the New Testament. And then over in our text in the book of Hebrews in the
is probably one of the least likely if there is such a thing. But in the New Testament, the same thing. I referenced you a woman that came behind Jesus, remembering Simon the Pharisee's house, washing his feet with her tears and drying them with the hairs of her head and anointing him with that, never said a word. She was a woman of the city. Simon sitting there saying if he knew what kind of... Oh, he knew what kind of... 